Matthew chapter 5. We're just going to deal with the very final beatitude this morning together. So if you would, let your eyes go down to verse 10, where Jesus Christ says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When I read the Beatitudes, I wish that all my children would be able to live out the Beatitudes, except for this one. This one, being persecuted for righteousness, which is really fleshed out in social ostracism and in a few physical torture, is something I would never wish for my children because, frankly, there's a part of me that's scared for them, that they wouldn't survive it. Experiencing social ostracism, social rejection for Jesus Christ will prove to be too much for them. Or especially any kind of physical persecution, even of their parents. I was always afraid that if such a thing would happen that my children would lose their faith. I always feared that it would kind of shred apart their, their faith in Christ. It would be too much for them to consider, too much for them to absorb. Why would I ever want to live this way, they would then say to themselves. And of course, truth be told, I fear persecution as well. You know, there's kind of the, the, the train is going down the tracks, the Beatitude tracks, and you kind of check out at the last one, maybe. We even had even a few weeks of separation from studying the Beatitudes. This one, for a lot of us, I think when we look at it, we say, well, yeah, we agree. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is, until we experience it. And so while I fear for my children, and I even fear a little bit for myself, there is absolutely no fear in Jesus' words here. In fact, just the opposite. He even tells us in verse 12 to rejoice and be glad. Luke's gospel adds the words, leap for joy. You ever do that, leap for joy? For some of us, that's a little hard. We don't get very far off the ground. But Luke records Jesus' words. Matthew records Jesus' teachings as the proper response. Because after all, great is your reward in heaven when you've been persecuted this way. Now, persecution comes in a, really just two different forms. I've already mentioned them. Ostracism. And then beyond that, physical torture. I think we're all familiar with physical torture, which sometimes leads to death. There were several 
members of a family put to death in January in India in a village because they had been 10-year converts to Christianity out of a tribal religion in that area. And due to their lives and due to the testimony and due to the antagonism that they stirred up, these meek people, poor, meek people, were put to death by their village. We understand that. And probably that's what we think about. That's kind of what captures our minds when we think about persecution. But ostracism or social rejection is the far more common type of persecution that every single believer in Jesus Christ gets. You get it from your family. They are not saved. You get it from co-workers. You get it from neighbors. You get it from even strangers. But there is, in fact, a, a certainty, as we'll see a little later, that this comes to all Christians. A social ostracism. Ostracism is hatred. Sometimes it is direct. Sometimes people are direct with you. They reject you for your public stand as a Christian. They tell you about it. Maybe most of the time it is actually silent. They either hold it within their heart that they hate you, that they are angry with you for what you stand for, or quite likely they discuss it with others in order to confirm their impressions that they are feeling, and upon finding others who feel the same way, they speak about you among themselves and talk about you, with the result being that you are ostracized from them. On a simple level, you would be made the butt of jokes. On a more profound level, they would do things to you so that you would lose opportunities, friendship, money, other things that they would use against you out of their anger to you. It doesn't mean that only physical torture is persecution. Persecution is a broad spectrum of things that relate to mostly social ostracism. Even in the Old Testament, this was true. Psalm 11, verse 2 David writes that the wicked shoot in darkness at the upright in heart, meaning that people hide from you their intentions against you, and then they act secretly. They let loose the arrow in your direction, and it scores fully. It hits you. You could not see it coming. That is why it was shot in darkness. God allows that to occur in order that when the arrow strikes, it may have its full effect. So painful is persecution that God uses social ostracism to reject the earnest disciple of Jesus Christ from the casual disciple of Jesus Christ. Do you remember the parable that he taught, he talked about how the sower went out to seed, and he seeded a whole area, and the seed went everywhere. One of those places it went in Jesus' parable was the rocky place. And the 
people who are represented by the seed that falls on rocky place where the seed kind of has a, a quick little growth and then it dies because there's no depth of soil for the little seeds to take deep root in, is the ostracized person. Listen to his words. Jesus says, The one on whom the seed was sown on rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. This could often be the individual who comes to church, who begins to admire the teachings of Christ, wants to begin to follow them, but once he begins to express that at work or in the home, Those who are opposed to such things instantly apply pressure, and because this individual has no depth within himself of love for Christ, therefore he has to choose between the love of his friends, the love of his co-workers, the love of his family, and he makes the choice to go with them and to leave behind Christ. Even though he'll continue to call himself a Christian, yet he will leave behind Christ. This is the reality of what persecution does, and one of the reasons why it's important is that it sifts out the differences between the spurious follower of Jesus Christ and the devoted follower of Jesus Christ. The genuine Christian always endures through the pain of ostracism. In the words of Scripture, he prefers the reproach of Christ, even as it is said of Moses back in Hebrews chapter 11, that he preferred the reproach of Christ to the favor of Pharaoh. You would prefer even the reproach of Christ to the favor of your parents, the favor of your children, the favor of your co-workers. But don't by that infer that it is any the less painful. In fact, if anything, it is the more painful because the very reason for why the persecution comes is not because you were a hateful, spiteful, mean, cruel person, but because you did what was right, as Jesus says in verse 10, persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Now, I don't know of any discipleship curriculum that I've ever read that teaches what Jesus teaches here in verse 10, that persecution for the sake of righteousness is the crowning achievement of discipleship. We understand that because it is at the end of all these beatitudes that Jesus lays out this highest, most noble one. All of, all of it has really been, been kind of cascading in a water flow, building up to this one right here. This is the crowning achievement of discipleship right here. It was certainly the crowning achievement of our Lord's life, wasn't it? As Joey is showing us in Matthew chapter 27, which is, excruciatingly painful to go through Sunday after Sunday. It's, it's, it's excruciating to, to have detailed for us the sufferings of our Lord, the persecutions that he went through, that were multiplied against him, that hit on so many different levels, so much more than the physical level. In fact, the worst persecutions, the worst things against him were not the physical level, as Joey has been bringing out. But it was certainly the crown of his life, as the author to Hebrews brings out in chapter 12. He says, Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then he has a word of application to you and me. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And then he adds this, for you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, meaning martyrdom. The idea is that as Christians, as those who love Christ, as those who have been saved by his death and resurrection, we're owned by him. We're his. Our life is his. Every part of us is his. We are owned by him. And yet he's been so good to us to give us a much kinder, nicer life than he himself had when he came to earth. And so the encouragement comes to us to not be so distressed when we experience in this world what he experienced. And as you read this beatitude, beloved, read verse 10, read verse 11, verse 12, it certainly fits. He fulfills this beatitude perfectly. Therefore, making him to be the most spiritually successful man ever. Now, with that kind of as a way to kind of perk our thoughts and lead us into this beatitude, we should learn from his words this morning, and we should learn from him this morning why it is that something so painful as persecution is so highly praised by Jesus Christ. Why is it that he saves this beatitude for the end? The beatitude that is the one that we really don't want to ask for, and nor should we ask for, certainly not the one we want for those we love, but yet he praises it and he has more to say about it than he does for any other beatitude. Let's discover this together as we kind of pay attention, and we're going to go through our familiar outline that we use. We talked about the condition being the blessed, that will be verse 10. We talked about the group. In this case, that's those who are persecuted. That will be verse 11. And then we talked about the reward. Every beatitude has a reward. Well, that's going to become verse 12 for us. So we'll walk through it in the same familiar pattern that we did with all the other beatitudes. But we will let this one kind of have its rightful role as king and crown of all. So look at verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What will you see, Jesus says, when God's blessing rests on someone? The Mercedes? The house? The constant promotions at the job? Good looks? No, Jesus says here, persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Or in other words, just to make it maybe more tangible for you and I, if people hate you for representing Jesus Christ, then you are a spiritually successful person. If they hate you for your singular passion and devotion for Jesus Christ, you are a spiritually successful person. Even though everything that you will feel and everything that you will be told will be the opposite exactly of that. 
And it reinforces our point that the Beatitudes are not about whether other people are looking at you and judging you as blessed or not blessed, and people are forming their own judgments by looking at the externals of your life, but rather the blessed person is what God defines as blessed by His sacred word. He is the one defining us for us what a blessed life is, what a blessed person is, what a spiritually successful person is. A spiritually successful person, Jesus says, has been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Contrary to what many say, spiritual success is not about how well you get along with yourself, which is kind of the way our culture reads spirituality. Oh, I see you're a very spiritual person. In other words, what does that mean? Well, you probably go to yoga three times a week, and you have this aura about yourself of calmness. Well, persecution is not going to produce calmness. The idea actually is that not that you are blessed if you even get along with everybody, which is another big thing. That's the spiritually successful person. Have you developed the kind of personality that gets along with everybody? No? That's not what Jesus is talking about. In fact, he directly contradicts that because he says, here you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. In other words, you are hated by other people. Nor are you blessed in this life if you are honored by people. No. It's if those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. So just the opposite of the kind of culture that we live in, whether Christianized or paganized, the idea that spiritual success is reflected by how you get along with other people. Rather, Jesus turns it upside down and says, if you receive painful conflict for other people because of me, you are a spiritually successful person. In fact, we can go a little bit further as we're examining the idea of being blessed here. This conflict that you experience in this life is not singly blessed, but rather doubly blessed. Jesus says it first in verse 10, blessed are, and then he repeats it in verse 11, blessed are. It is a doubly blessed person. Jesus has more to say about it than a single beatitude. The word blessed translates the Hebrew word ashray, which if you remember some of the past weeks we talked about it, it it's third-person testimonial. It's, it's when somebody other than yourself attributes to you, well, you're a blessed person. You're blessed. That's the idea behind the word that's being translated out of the Hebrew into the Greek and now finally into our English as the word blessed. Well, you all know what third-party testimonial is. It's used all the time to sell products. If you write a book, you've got to have somebody write a blurb on the back so that other people can read that and get a feeling that this is something good to read. If you want to buy toothpaste, you get somebody who hasn't been chewing on sugarcane all their life, but somebody whose teeth look like they were out of Photoshop. From everything from razor blades to cars to everything else that is sold, there's always these third-party testimonials. Well, I used it, and I lost 14 pounds in the first month. When we're just so used to it now, we don't even think about it. But that's the idea behind the word blessed. It's a third-party testimonial. 
But in the Beatitudes, it is not other people giving you a third-party testimony that your life is blessed. In fact, in verse 10, it's the opposite. It's other people persecuting you for the sake of righteousness. They're not thinking you're blessed. They're thinking the exact opposite of you. But in the Beatitudes, it is Jesus Christ himself speaking on behalf of God Almighty, giving you a third-party testimonial about what a blessed life is, and it takes your faith to believe it. This is not merely information for us. This is required reading for us to put our trust in, to agree with, especially when we are undergoing persecution, that being hated by people, and as Christians, especially by religious people, to be hated by them is oh so very blessed. So much so that you are commanded to have a party in your inner man. Look at verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you on my sake. See that that's social ostracism in that verse? Look, he says, rejoice and be glad. Not because your reward is great here, but because your reward in heaven is great. That's the idea. That takes faith to believe that, that you're not getting your reward now, but that reward is being laid up for you in heaven. Well, how did we get to this place? How did we get to consider something that is so reversed and, and looks so different than the way that we want life to go? We love for life to go with lots of friends, with social acceptance, with people smiling at us, loving us, admiring us. This is the total opposite. How do we get here? Well, you might remember, if you go back to verse 3, we started with the beginning beatitude. You might remember, in verse 3, Jesus describes how a person even enters into the kingdom of heaven. They are broken. They are destitute of any self-righteousness. That's why he describes them being poor in spirit, or literally beggarly poor in spirit. When they look at themselves, there's nothing to find contentment or happiness in. Just the opposite of everything the world teaches us. They are the recipients of God's Word, not only hearing it, but having it enter into their heart. They're struck. Their self-confidence is eroded away. They're poor in spirit. Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Why? Because now they are ready to accept God. (laughs) And God's terms, not on their own. And so as a person like this, you, you want to turn away from yourself, from your inner life. You want something that's good and valuable, not something transient, but you want something permanent, and you want it from God, and God gives you the gospel, and God gives you salvation. The Holy Spirit, He gives you His grace. That's why Jesus says in verse 3, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They possess the kingdom of heaven even now while walking on this earth. They inherit God's salvation. But then because of all of that of being poor in spirit, he goes on and teaches in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn. They mourn over their sin because they're poor in spirit. 
But the glorious promise is that they'll be comforted throughout their life by God himself. And therefore, being comforted, we now march into verse 5. As those who are always comforted, they become those who are gentle, those who are meek, not asserting themselves, but almost always ever being trampled on in this life, even as Jesus Christ was, knowing that their life isn't now, but their life is really laid up with God in heaven. And more than that, they shall, according to verse 5, inherit the earth itself and all things that God has granted. And all these things shall be theirs forever. So therefore, giving up their rights, their pride, their property, their self-security, friendships in this life, they give up everything and are certainly willing to give up everything considering what they're going to get. And so because they know that the future for them is so rich and so good and so filled with that, of the things that God has promised in verse 5, excuse me, in verse 6, they become those who grow constantly hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and they shall be satisfied. They hunger and thirst for God's own righteousness. They want that lived out in their life. And so they, they grow out of patterns of sin, and they grow into patterns of righteousness. So much so that it becomes even more passionate for them than food and drink in all the various circumstances of your life, inwardly, as a Christian, you're yearning, God, how do you want me to live in this circumstance? How do you want me to think? How do you want me to act? What am I supposed to say? And you hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the promise in verse 6 is they shall be satisfied, a constant satisfaction that God is at work in their life. And so they're feeding their hearts with the food of heaven through this life. And verse 7 says that as you are doing that, you become merciful to people, not judgmental. Because you're a person who's going to receive mercy. And, and you learn mercy from who God is and how He's constantly and every day showing mercy to all people. And that becomes now your pattern, your heart, to show mercy, your and then your heart, as you do that, is purified in verse 8 to only want the true God, the true and living God. You desire to worship God alone in this life, to have no idols, and you anticipate seeing Him, as it says at the end of verse 8, that He shall be my only God. And as a result, then now relationships on earth in verse 9 are transitioned to their highest form, being a peacemaker, a man, a woman who makes peace with other people through the means of righteousness in order that men and women may have peace with God and with each other. How wonderful is that? But because this is the kind of individual who tries to make peace with people according to God's standard, you know what happens? They get hated for it. Most people don't want that. Most people don't want peace according to God's standards. And so they end up socially ostracizing you for doing that, which is what leads us into verse 10. 
Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. But only now, instead of receiving the kingdom of heaven as poor beggars, back in verse 3, they are now those who receive the kingdom of heaven, as it says at the end of verse 10, as those who are its proper citizens, who have embodied in their lives the meekness of Jesus Christ and therefore the conflict of Jesus Christ and the same treatment as Jesus Christ, they are persecuted. They are the persecuted for Jesus' sake, for righteousness' sake. So then what should be our reaction to these people? These people who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Well, sadly, and this happens all too frequently, many will distrust them who are being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. They will further actually add to the experience of alienation that those who are suffering receive. They will suspect that the reason why they're being persecuted in their families or at co or at work is because they didn't do something right that they should have. Or they said something they shouldn't have. And, and so these overly sanctified believers very frequently will look at the person being persecuted and want to determine for themselves why this individual has been treated this way. Only adding to the pain of the individual going through the persecution. They must not have been pleasing enough. They must have said something wrong. They probably saw a flaw in the character. Job chapter 12 verse 5 says this interesting word that he who is at ease holds calamity in contempt as prepared for those whose feet slip. The idea is this, that when life is at ease and other people are suffering persecution, that the person at ease looks at the person who is suffering persecution and since they are at ease, determines that the reason why they're getting persecution is because their foot was about to slip. They were about to go into sin or they had already sinned, but they had earned it, in other words. Well, they're half right. They did earn it, but not because they went off and sinned or not because they were socially foolish. They earned it because, according to Jesus Christ, in verse 10, they were persecuted for the sake of righteousness. So how should we treat these people? Well, the answer is right flat on the page. We should call them blessed. We certainly want to cry with them. We certainly want to pray with them. We certainly want to build them up. But if we are to call them anything, let us call them blessed. Why should we call them blessed? Well, because of verse 12. Because the reward in heaven is great. In fact, Jesus wanted to teach us about this. If you would, you can hold your finger here. But I want you to go over to John chapter 15 with me, please. John chapter 15. While you're turning there, mention a story. I was once in a room with a great Russian Baptist pastor. He's now dead, but he was taking students from a, a questions from a large number of seminary students, young men, and he himself was very old. His body was frail. He was 
a rather large man, but his clothing was a peasant's clothing, you could tell. He came to learn that his own parents had suffered for Jesus Christ in Russia. They had both been imprisoned for a long time during the administration of Stalin, and they had been released. And this man himself, now elderly, had likewise been imprisoned for a long time for his faith in Jesus Christ, where he had been tortured. He had even had to leave his children while they were young, leaving them for his wife to care for while he was sent to prison. And as a result, in his old age, his health was shot. His fingers were twisted. Parts of his body were contorted. He wasn't able to walk in a straight line. Here he was before us, a living hero of our faith. The young man asked him, I thought it was a pretty bold and pretty good question, frankly. He said, what did you learn by being persecuted? His answer after being translated was this. One sentence, basically. I will not speak of such things. I will only speak of my Lord Jesus Christ. I think he understood well the realities that persecutions are not the things you really talk about. They aren't the things you explain to people. There's a lot of people who will misjudge them. They are almost a singular inward gift of the Lord Jesus Christ to the soul, to personally glory in before the Lord, but not before other believers. I'd like you to look at verse 18 here in John 15 and understand that you, beloved Christian, this is written to you. Jesus says in verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Hey, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. (coughs) But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Alternatively, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my namesake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have had no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my Father also. We'll stop there, but you can go on in this passage. Beloved friends, this is our inheritance as Christians. Every one of us gets a level of persecution in this world. Every one of us, in order that we may identify on a very root level, with our Lord Jesus Christ in a personal way. You can go back to Matthew 5. If you could ask the Lord, Lord, what was it like to go through those persecutions when you were you know, going through the scourging and when you were having the crown put on your head and, and when they were putting the spikes through your, through your hands and feet, when you were hanging there, what was it like? He might answer this out of Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Although I was a son, I learned obedience from the things which I suffered, 
And having been made perfect, I have become to all those who obey me the source of eternal salvation. (laughs) Rather than talk about the persecutions and what they physically felt like, you might just talk about what he accomplished by them. Paul expresses this in Romans chapter 15, verse 3. He says this, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus is saying there, and Paul is quoting it, Jesus is here quoted that out of the book of Psalms that the reproaches that fell on God the Father have landed on me. This is the great glory of persecution. Oh, if Jesus had been there, they would have treated you. They would have treated him the way that they treated you. But since he wasn't there and you were there, therefore they're treating you exactly as his representative. This is why the social ostracism comes. This is why all these distressing circumstances come. This is why there is lack of opportunity, lack of respect, lack of honor, lack of dignity, being pushed out. And in many places, there's a physical torture as an extra component upon it. <clears throat> Ask the question, according to Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, then what was Jesus when he was being persecuted? And the answer from verse 10 is he was blessed. He was blessed. He was the ultimate man who was persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Therefore, he was ultimately blessed. So what are you when you are persecuted? Blessed. You are being treated as God the Father and as God the Son in a world of angry rebels. You are blessed. God says in the book of Zechariah, he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. That Hebrew expression, the apple of the eye, refers to the cornea. It's the most exposed and sensitive part of the eye. It's the part that we are always the most careful to protect, almost instant reflex when anything even begins to come close. This is what you are to God. You are that about which He is most sensitive about in this world. Those who attack God's children poke a finger in God's eye, in other words. You are extremely precious to Him as He grants you the favor, although it feels not like favor, but it is in heavenly cash, the favor of being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. So that's the condition. Blessed. How blessed. Doubly blessed. And now that gives way to the group, which is simply those who are persecuted. Verse 11, Blessed are you when when people insult you, and persecute you and falsely say all evil against you because of me. See the word persecute there? It's the same word that's used also back in verse 10. It's the word dioko. It was the, it was the, the word meant to pursue, like to be hunted. You ever been hunted or hounded down? Probably not. You're probably more the hunter than you are the hunted. But this is the idea behind this word. You are the hunted. You are the one that's being Counted down, the idea being that you never get a moment of any real relief. There is the constant mental agitation that you are being hunted. This is why persecution is fearful. It brings in the unknown. And so therefore, in verse 11, it is not primarily referring to the physical persecutions, 
but rather the breaking down of your inward person due to fear, due to the sheer uncertainty of the future of what lies ahead due to the persecution. You know not how far it will go. You know not when it will end. You know not what you will experience. But it brings about fears on a number of levels. This is really brought out in my translation here in verse 10 when Jesus says, have been persecuted. But most of your translations are going to say, blessed are those who are being persecuted (coughs) or are persecuted. But the, this version gets it right. The idea being is that you were persecuted in the past, but you are now still, after it, experiencing the effects. You could still be in it, but it's happened in the past. It could be yesterday. It could be a year ago. It isn't specified, but the idea is that you are still experiencing the fear, the shame, the awkwardness, of all the persecution that went on, you're still feeling it. See, the Lord's describing a person who still feels terror from their past persecutions. This isn't, by the way, I need to say this here. I hope that you'll catch what I'm saying here. This is not a persecution for being a religious person. This is not a persecution for standing up for your First Amendment rights and speaking out about a moral topic. This is not a persecution about standing up for your Second Amendment rights. This is a persecution that has to do very specifically with Jesus Christ. It's not even as Howard Hendricks, the great Bible teacher from Dallas Seminary, used to say. He used to say, well, this is not about being persecuted for stupidity's sake. You know, where you do something stupid and you get persecuted for it, and then you tell everybody that, oh, I've been, I'm being persecuted. It's not that. Even the book of 1 Peter deals with that. Peter says, what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? Now, there's a specific little word here. I, I, I think you can see it. Back in verse 10, do you see the word sake, S-A-K-E? Not sake. <laughs> sake. <laughs> and, and that whole little phrase there, for the sake of, is one little word in the original language. It's a word, enakin. And it, it, means, it refers to something that causes something else to occur as a direct result. The idea would be then, those who are persecuted for the direct result of righteousness, or for the direct result of following God's word, trying to apply it in a hard situation. That would be the idea. That's what the persecution is for. I, I once had a coworker at a law firm who believed that her boss was persecuting her because of her faith in Jesus Christ. And he was always keeping her late, which was very hard for her because she was a single parent and she had a little boy around seven or eight. She was always trying to take care of him, and so it was very hard for her, difficult to pick up her son. She'd always have to call the caregiver, can you take care of him later, even to like eight o'clock? She ended up telling me that it was the boss's secretary's fault because, quote, she is an atheist and she hates me. At first, I 
believed her, but then as I was employed in the law firm for a little bit longer, it became clear that she would talk to this secretary for hours every day, talking about the hard things in her life. So she wasn't able to finish her work, and so she had to stay late in order to finish her work. She wasn't being persecuted for righteousness' sake. More the former one that I was telling you about. You could take these words here, especially at the end of verse 11 where he says, against you because of me. And you could almost read them this way as the idea that you were persecuted out of submission to me. I think as believers, we always have a very difficult time of trying to figure out, am I being persecuted because I did something wrong or am I being persecuted because of Christ? If you're like me, your conscience will tell you it's probably me. I probably did something wrong. Certainly done plenty of things wrong (laughs) over the course of my life. And then you're wondering, well, did I get that reaction because I did something wrong or because of Christ? And I think those last final words in verse 11 are so helpful to you on this level. Because of me. Because you were submitted to his word and you desired to apply it. Did you apply it 100% perfectly? Of course not. (coughs) None of us ever do. None of us ever do. But you were doing it in faith. You were doing it as best you could. Therefore, the persecution came, maybe quickly, maybe later, depending on the scenario. But this would be the idea of helping you figure out the source of the persecution. In fact, there's even more detail in verse 11 that can help us out with that. If you look at verse 11, he says, Blessed are you when people insult you. Insult you. That's when people speak in order to demean you, in order to embarrass you, especially before others. They want to shame you. This word insult is not really name-calling, which is what we tend to think of in our culture when you were insulted. Or maybe somebody passed you on the highway with a particular hand gesture, and I was insulted. But that's not what this word is getting at. This is more wanting to shame you before others, the idea. More of a slurring against your your motives. For example, uh, it's used in the passage that Pastor Joey is going through right now, talking about the insults against Christ. Let me give you one out out of the Gospel of Mark. Here he is hanging on the cross, and this word, insult, is describing this scene. Listen, some men are at the cross, and they say, Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. And as I said earlier, this idea of insults primarily comes from religious people who kind of get the idea of following God and therefore know how to get at your motives. More deeper than kind of the secular Joe, but it's more the religious person who who wants to hurt you and defame you. Then next in verse 11, Jesus uses the word persecute. We saw that under verse 10, that that's to harass someone, especially because of their beliefs. And then thirdly, in verse 11, they say all kinds of evil against you falsely. This is just slander, the personal, the purposeful crafting of words in order to make you 
cringe or to make you out to be a liar, to make you out to be a thief, to make you out to be a sinner. That's the idea. And want to say things against you falsely. The idea then is that as a follower of Jesus Christ, anything, no matter how false, will be contrived against you, will be spoken against you, no matter how contrived. Peter gives us a word of comfort and counsel on this out of 1 Peter. Listen to this. He said, To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory you may exult with rejoicing. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. All through the New Testament, there's so much counsel on how to go through this kind of persecution. You really get the idea that when you read the New Testament, you're reading it as written to people who are being persecuted for Jesus Christ. So many things make sense when we understand that. That the New Testament was written to people who suffer, who suffer uniquely for Jesus Christ in this world. Beloved, such painful experiences are so essential to our spiritual growth. Persecution robs our comfort. It shakes our whole world. It forces out our commitments to Christ, to the gospel, to truth. It forces us to weigh the value of eternity versus the value of, t- of this time. It strikes to the deepest of our levels. Like all who have followed Christ through the centuries, you and I are no different. If we follow him, it will cost us friends. It will cost us family. It will cost us respect from people. It may well cost us job advancements. It will cost us comfort in this world, forcing us to go back to the basic truths that we understand when we become Christians, that we are only pilgrims going through a very temporary yet beautiful place, but dangerous place. Dangerous to the one who would walk by faith in Jesus Christ. And then lastly, let's move on from the group, which is the people who are being persecuted, to the promise. Verse 12, because the promise is spectacular. Verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let me make an observation here. Do you see the word great? See the word great? It's a word that's different than the word used for great down in verse 19. Look at the end of verse 19. Just drop your eyes down there. Whoever keeps and teaches Christ's commandments, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's the word mega. Oh, we get that word mega, right? We get that word mega. That's not the word, if you back your eyes now, back up to verse 12, that's not the word that's used here. It's not mega. It's the word we get poly from, which we always put on the front of words. Polynomials, poly this, poly that. It's always, the word is for many. It's really a quantitative word. It's a quantity, many. But if you read it and you say, well, 
Verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is many. Not so sure what he's talking about. So we have to translate it great. But the idea is of a great number of rewards. Now it could refer to how long the rewards last for you who are persecuted. Or it could refer to many different rewards. I think the answer to that is in the analogy. It's both. Look at the analogy that Jesus uses at the end of verse 12. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, what kind of rewards did the Old Testament prophets get? Well, in Scripture there are a number of pictures for the rewards for such kinds of persons. Some pictures describe a special intimacy with God. You can have things like the saints under the altar in a place of special intimacy. That's used in Revelation 6, which trails into Old Testament places like Psalm 13. You kind of get this picture of the friend of God pictures that are used in the Old Testament. For example, God rescued Elijah when he was still in his flesh. God rescued Enoch when he was still in his flesh. Both of them were persecuted and, and hated for their righteousness, and therefore God didn't allow them to die. We took them to him. Or, or sometimes, like, it refers to people who were n- spectacular in the Old Testament for their faith and are still spoken of as being alive by God in the Old Testament. In the book of Ezekiel, for example, God says, look, even if Noah, Job, and Daniel were alive, I would still punish these people. As if they were still alive, almost like still they were on earth. Just, just expressing a deep intimacy with these people. Other passages in Scripture describe levels and rewards as levels of authority in God's future government. Others describe beauty as those who will shine as the stars of heaven forever. And then there's even the use of possessions to describe the kind of rewards that will come. You remember he who is faithful in little is what? Faithful also in much. The idea being that when the rewards are passed out, that he who's been faithful in little will be really granted a huge, abundant amount. All these things are pictures of the kind of rewards that we will get in heaven. Now, we know back from verse 5 that all believers are going to inherit the earth. And we know from verse 8 that all believers are going to see God. How wonderful is that? But there are, within each of those, levels of reward. And Jesus promises that to all those, in verse 10, who have been persecuted, then drop down to verse 12, that they will all receive great reward in heaven. A great reward, such as was granted the all-time heroes of God, the prophets. The great men of this world as described in the book of Hebrews and all through the Old Testament. And listen, beloved, this reward, I say this for your faith, this reward is not iffy. This reward is not maybe. This reward is reserved in heaven for you. Because of that fact, Jesus says at the beginning of verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad because you will receive the reward of spiritual success. Great reward in heaven. Far too great 
to describe in earthly terms that you and I could accept right now and go, hmm, I wonder if that's great enough. No, so great you can't handle the truth about them. This is why this is pitted against the extreme pain of persecution is the extreme reward for you having been persecuted for righteousness' sake. Shall we trust the Lord for these things together? And shall we walk in this life as those accepting these opportunities for His glory's sake and for the sake of future reward? Let's pray. Lord, we bless Your holy name. We would take from your hand such a life as you would give to us in a depth of gratitude that can only be measured by us rejoicing and being glad when we are persecuted for your sake. Oh, I rue the day of the many bitternesses and the many grumblings against thee. When the biblical pattern, the scriptural pattern, was to rejoice and be glad. But I thank thee that thou art a merciful God who understands and is deeply compassionate and who loves and loves again. And when you have only just begun to love, even in the midst of persecution, your graciousness and your kindness and your steadfast presence shall not leave. Therefore, we commit every one of us in this room to be your disciple. Bring us what you will, only let us walk with you even when persecution comes, and even if there are so few others who will accept. 